In Session with Dr. Farid Holakou. Good afternoon and Happy New Year. Welcome to the first episode of In Session with Dr. Farid Holakwi. I'm your host, Dr. Farid Holakwi, and I'll be with you for the next two hours here on Radio Hamra. Studio number to call in, 310-441-0555. I'm a licensed clinical psychologist, so you can call in with any questions related to clinical psychology, including any emotional or psychological issues, parenting issues, and relationship issues as well. You can also follow me on Twitter or Instagram or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show or suggest topics or books for the program. And the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and free podcasts on iTunes. Again, our studio number, 310-441-0555. Before I get into uh, the books, um, I do have to say something about the situation in Iran right now with the protests and uh, chaos that is going on there. Now, I don't want to say too much because it is a dynamic situation, and I think anyone listening to our radio station uh, has gotten a lot of very good analysis and information, and I really can't say I can add much to it, and so I don't want to get into too much of a discussion about that, but definitely our thoughts, prayers, and our eyes are on Iran and everything that is going on there. Uh, and I will, for now, leave it at that, maybe on a later show, talk more about what's going on. Uh, but felt that I had to definitely say something about that. Um, but before I get into the books, uh, you know, last year I made this commitment to myself in the school of reading a book a week, and I did that, and I think that I'd like to continue that, so I will be doing a book a week this year as well. So please, if you have books in mind, please send them my way uh, on social media, as many of you made recommendations that I did use last year. So I appreciate those and appreciate those coming my way uh, for this year as well. Uh, let me announce the book of the week for this week. It is called Nonsense by Jamie Holmes. Nonsense, the power of not knowing. A book I've not read and I don't know much about the author, but I did like the title and what I saw from just skimming through it briefly with this idea that a lot of what we deal with in the world is uncertain. We don't know, and we have to actually be okay with that. And the more we can accept not knowing, we actually can be much more successful and happier in the world. So I thought that would be an interesting topic to look at. So uh, the book is called Nonsense by Jamie Holmes. Uh, but the book for this past week was The Elements of Taste by Benjamin Eret. The Elements of Taste, Understanding What We Like and Why. Uh, this was an interesting book. I, I think I expected something slightly different than what it was, but it was still interesting to look at someone analyzing taste and why we might like the things that we like. And an overall thesis of the book was to actually uh, compare our taste in food or the ways we taste food to different types of art and culture that we take it in other ways. So um, he talks about in the book how there are five basic tastes that people agree upon or seem to be agreed upon, which are sweet, sour, salty, bitter, and a fifth one, umami, which was uh, new for me. I didn't know it was a specific taste, but it has like a meat, meaty or brothy type feeling. It's found in cheeses and meats. Um, 
but he talks about how these five tastes of food can also be mapped onto everything else from books to music to movies and that we sometimes in a way seek to have different elements in our palate so you might want something sweet sometimes which is things that are more communal and nice and kind but then there's also sour which is more thrilling and exciting the salty translates to dark in culture and bitter is more of the aesthetic so we think of bitter in coffee which is like an acquired taste but it could also be something like opera in culture which is more of an acquired taste it's more of the aesthetic and then umami he talks about a cerebral which is in some ways this feeling that you can't quite understand it's hard to describe how to to uh, see umami in culture but he, he talks about that um but you know reading this book was interesting in giving me some of that perspective he talked about in the different types of taste but also in just thinking about why we like what we like which I think is an interesting question. And if you ask someone why they like what they like, very often they don't actually know. We might think we know, uh, but generally we're coming up with logical reasons to explain why something feels good to us or we enjoy something. Um, even a, a study I talked about from another book, which I thought was really interesting, was they would show men two pictures of, uh, of two different women. And they would say, which one do you think is more attractive? And they would say, for example, the one on the left. Now, they would switch the pictures and actually give the person the other photograph of the other woman. And then they were asked to pick up the picture and say why they thought that woman was more attractive. And most of the time, the men didn't realize the pictures were switched. And they would give reasons for why that woman was more attractive. Oh, I like her smile. There's something in her eyes, whatever it might be. So they weren't even aware that they actually did not find this woman more attractive than the other one. And they were very good at, in the moment, coming up for quote-unquote reasons. I say quote-unquote because it appears they probably aren't the actual reasons, but why they thought they found that person more attractive. So we might think we know, but uh, as I've talked about a lot in the different books expressing this idea, that we know a lot less about ourselves than we think we do. We think we know what we're thinking or feeling or why we're thinking or feeling what we do or even our political views, but very often it's something that we're not quite aware of. We think it's logical, but it's something more emotional or unconscious. And he cites this uh, lyric from uh, a book. So he says, Or as Shirley Bassey and the propeller heads put it in the song, History Repeating, some people won't dance if they don't know who's singing. Why ask your head? It's your hips that are swinging. And I thought that was kind of interesting because I've noticed that even in myself. Sometimes you hear a new song and you want to know who's singing it almost to know how much you should like it. Because if it's an artist you don't like, you don't want to say you like it. Or if it's an artist that is not, quote unquote, very good, and that can mean a lot of different things, you don't want to like it. And I've definitely felt that myself, not wanting to like a song. Because we do all have this feeling of wanting to have good taste. We want to be someone who has good taste. I like high quality things. I like the best of things. We all want to have that feeling. I think we strongly identify with that as somehow making us have a higher status or uh, looking better or appearing better socially to be someone who has good taste. But as that song lyric says, it's interesting how we ask our head if we should like a song or enjoy a food or a drink or a movie rather than just seeing if we like it or not. We definitely get in our own way, which I think is kind of 
interesting, but it shows how much we can take almost pride in what we like or dislike. Um, and that's another big thing to say things we dislike sometimes with pride to say, I don't like, even though everyone seems to like this, I don't like it because, and somehow making ourselves feel superior. I have better taste or, uh, that's too simple for me. I like something more complicated or, um, I like things that have a certain, you know, je ne sais quoi, you can't even describe it, but that doesn't have that. It's lacking in something. And so I think it's interesting because we see people get upset about everyone following the herd. Okay, everyone liking the same music. Oh, you like that song because it's on the radio all the time or because pop culture tells you you're supposed to like it or because you want to fit in. But there's also a, a group, or at least we can say we do this at different times, where we actually make the decision to dislike the popular in almost the same way that people like the popular. By that I mean if you rebel against something and just choose its opposite, you're still being controlled by the same group. So I can tell you to jump and some people jump and you say, see, they're just following the herd. But if there's also other people that say, anytime you say jump, I'm going to sit. And if you say sit, I'm going to jump. They're still allowing me to control them because I'm still dictating what they do. They're just choosing to do the exact opposite of what I say. But those people can feel very much that they're making a choice. They're being different or they're not being controlled by the powers that be or the mainstream media or whoever else it might be. But if you're doing the exact opposite, you're still not choosing. Someone who is genuinely choosing would be able to tap into themselves and see what do they actually like and genuinely like, which more than likely will sometimes still be the popular thing, but sometimes it won't be the popular thing. So just because you like something that's either popular or unpopular or fits into this category or that category, we don't really know what it tells us about you because we don't know the why. Why are you liking or disliking that thing? Uh, I remember, you know, sometimes a new album would come out of a band that you like, and some people would always say that they liked the song that was not popular. They would never say that their favorite song was a popular song. Because again, is that feeling of, I somehow have a refined taste that doesn't like what everyone else likes. I can like things that are different from that. So I think it's interesting to, to think about these things and recognize again how little we might know about ourselves or how little we might um, think or we think we know, but we actually don't know why it is we like or dislike something. Um, the book also talks about something called norm core, which I hadn't heard of before, which is people, and this relates to what I was just talking about, who can accept liking the thing that's popular because they genuinely like it. So they're not afraid to like that thing. And I thought that was actually an interesting term. There is so much a reaction against that. There's even, uh, you know, we, we talk about hipsters, this group that are very much focused on not liking the popular things or liking things ironically or liking things that you're almost not supposed to like. Um, but then there can be another side where it's actually you embrace that you like some of the normal or basic things and that there's nothing wrong with that at all. Uh, but, you know, he, he talks about different elements of taste in that we like different things at different times and that can be okay. Maybe you're feeling a little bit down and you want to see a, a cheesy, sweet movie and you pop one of those in. Uh, but maybe if you see too much of that, you need something else more exciting or salty to, to spice, you know, change things up. And sometimes you might want something more cerebral, something that makes you think a little more. 
Um, and so just like in a meal where you might try to balance the different tastes in your cultural experience, you might do that as well. You might do a little sweet with salty, something that is actually very popular, both in what we eat and as he describes in movies and films and things like that, we like that as well. So, we, you know, you can mix those things up. So it was an interesting book to kind of take a closer look at what it is that we like, how we can categorize it and what it might be telling us about why we might be drawn to certain things. But to me, a basic understanding of taste also comes with this idea that it's really hard to define or describe taste at the end of the day. Even a lot of the, the definitions he gives or theories he talks about, it's always at the end something that you qu can't quite define. You can't define all of it, but we have some ideas of it. And so it was an interesting book to get a better understanding uh, of that. So that's Elements of Taste, Understanding What We Like and Why by Benjamin Arrett. A little bit less psychology related, but definitely still related to preferences and likes. So it had some of that. Uh, and the book again for this coming week is Nonsense, The Power of Not Knowing by Jamie Holmes. All right, we've reached our first commercial break. Studio number 3104410555. You're listening to In Session with Dr. Fatty Delacqui. We'll be right back. You know, last week I talked about setting goals, and I hope a lot of you did. I, I set some goals this past weekend and uh, also made sure to get some support and accountability with those goals. One of them was continuing um, reading the books each week. As I mentioned last week, I'm so happy I made that goal and was able to follow through. It really was uh, important for me. Um, but as we, many of us know, people make New Year's goals or they often call them resolutions, and already today's what, January 3rd, a lot of people have broken them because it's hard to make changes, and that's what I wanted to talk about in this segment. Change is hard. Change is difficult. It's always going to be a challenge to make any type of meaningful change, and we have to be ready for that, and we have to accept that. And in order to make changes... We obviously have to make changes in what we do. I know that sounds simple and almost sounds redundant or not worth stating, but the problem is most of us keep doing the same things or following the same patterns but hoping for a different result. It just doesn't happen. If you don't do something different, you won't get a different result. If you don't take a different road, you won't end up at a different destination. You have to do something different. But this is where the challenge comes in is that we are all so stuck in our patterns and stuck in our um, comfort zones that we have a very hard time changing, even if it means going towards health. Oftentimes, I think people have this idea that if something is healthier, naturally we should go towards it. But that's not the case. That doesn't seem to be the case at all. Let's take a simple example of your posture or the way you walk. Most of us probably walk in a way and hold our posture in a way that's not good for us and our back and our whole body. Uh, but if someone were to come to you, a, a doctor who 
or physical therapist or trainer and was to teach you to walk a more healthy way, at the beginning, beginning it's going to feel very wrong to you. And when you start taking some steps, you really have to think about it. But if you stop thinking about it or you go back to your comfort zone, you go, ah, let me go back to that way I used to walk, which is actually bad for you. So to go towards health, although we would hope in, in some ways our body and our mind can go towards it or it could be a more natural state of affairs to become that way, it doesn't mean it doesn't happen without some conscious effort to make that change. And if we take an even more extreme example, think of someone who smokes cigarettes or does some kind of a drug. They're literally putting a poison in their body that the body has now gotten so used to that if you remove that poison or remove it for a long enough period of time, they'll start to have painful, uncomfortable symptoms. And everything in their brain and body is going to tell them to put that poison back into their body to use it again, to take one more drag or to inject or take the pill or whatever it might be that is their drug of choice. Every, everything in their body is going to tell them and their brain. And that's when people become so good at tricking themselves into finding a reason why it's right to take the drug because that's what the body feels it needs then. So we can almost become, we can become dependent, unfortunately, on something that's poisonous, that's hurtful. And this isn't just true physically, it's also true emotionally. People are in relationships that are toxic, but they become so dependent on the relationship, so used to it, so attached to the person and to the relationship, that if you take it away, just like an addict, what they'll want more than anything is to have that toxic, horrible, painful relationship back. So we have to accept that we can in a way be our own worst enemy or going back to even the, the idea of taste, which was the last, uh, the book I was talking about in the previous segment, what we're drawn towards, what even seems like we like can be very harmful for us. So if you want to make a change, we have to accept that about ourselves, that the things we're drawn towards, the choices we make, what feels natural and right to us often is the thing that's hurting us the most. So to make a change, you almost have to be ready to accept doing things that can feel wrong, unnatural, not right, not the thing you want to do if you want to make changes, if you want to make something happen. You have to be ready for that feeling to come about. You want to end a relationship that's hurtful, you have to be ready that you're not going to want to do it. It's never going to feel like the right time. Sometimes I tell people there's no national breakup day because I feel like people are waiting for some quote-unquote right time to break up. And you'll always find a reason. Oh, Valentine's Day is coming up. Oh, a birthday is coming up. Oh, we're going to go do this or go do that. It's never going to feel right because you don't want to lose that comfort zone, that comfortable feeling that you have. So we have to be ready to embrace discomfort if you want to make a change, if you want to make progress. Um, for example, if you're a student or you're going back to school, you're going to have to put off doing fun things, relaxing, enjoying yourself to do hard work, sometimes very boring work, work that you don't like. But that's the only way you're going to be successful or wake up earlier than you'd like to to get to class on time. That's the only way it's going to work. It's not going to feel right. When you're in bed, a lot of your body's going to tell you, just stay in bed, sleep more, who cares? Get away from it. We have to be willing to embrace discomfort. Uh, discomfort is a very good thing. If we embrace it, we can actually grow. We can't grow without it. And this is again where our brains can trick us 
because we like to feel comfortable. We think it's right because we take that feeling of comfort as something that's good for us and discomfort as something bad because that's the way things are in a lot of ways. Pain tends to be an indication of something bad. Comfort and relief we think of as something good. But there is a difference between the types of pain that we can experience. And this is something I've talked about before. And when it comes to change, it's important to reiterate. There is pain that is damage. And there's pain that is growth. And sometimes it can be hard to tell them apart. But if we really look closely, if we really tune into it, we can get a sense of what's going on. So, for example, if you're exercising... Uh, if you're working out and you are straining your muscles in a good way, you're having a good workout, you're going to feel some pain. There's the adage, no pain, no gain. Because if you want to build muscle, if you want to improve your physical strength and your health or even flexibility, you might need to have some discomfort and pain to get there. It's going to be needed. That's the pain that leads to growth. Now, if every time you exercised, you stopped before it became painful in any way, then you wouldn't be pushing yourself. You wouldn't be allowing yourself to grow. You need to have that discomfort and pain. That's the way it works. But then, of course, there's also the pain when you're exercising that could be damaged to your body. You are hurting a ligament. You are breaking even a bone or getting a stress fracture, uh, hurting tendons. That's damage. That's not positive. And if we're not aware of how we're working out or if we're pushing ourselves too hard in the wrong way or not having the right form and things of that sort, well, then that leads to damage that is actually hurting us. And so most of the time, our brain is paying attention to pain in that way, that if something hurts, it's something bad. If something doesn't feel good, we should avoid it. But this is what exactly what gets us into trouble, because if we always just do what feels more comfortable or what doesn't hurt, we don't grow. Growth comes with pain. There are growing pains that come with it. And so we have to become more aware and sensitive to this idea that we can't just give in to the easy, painless response. That's not going to lead to what we want. That's not going to lead to a goal. No one's achieved anything important without some level of discomfort, pain, delaying gratification, avoiding relief, avoiding comfort. It just doesn't happen. It doesn't work. So you have to have that talk with yourself. And this is why when I was talking about goals last week, a big part of it was making sure it's something that's relevant and important to you. Because if it's not important to you, then you won't be willing to face the discomfort. You won't be willing to face the pain or continuously face that. You might do it a few times, but if you lose the excitement or don't have enough motivation, you're going to give up. Why would you stress yourself and put yourself in pain for something that doesn't mean that much to you? So you have to do that. Now, another important part, I talked about accountability last week and having people keep you accountable, but also what can be very important is asking for help. As I've mentioned before, Asking for help, although often seen as a sign of weakness, is very often the strongest thing you can do. It can be a sign that you recognize how important something is and that you can't do it by yourself. This morning, actually, I went and met with a, a personal trainer because I was realizing and I've realized I've been struggling getting myself in shape the way I'd like to, to do. And I, could, I need some help. That help is what I'm going to need 
to keep someone, uh, to, for someone to keep me accountable and to push me. And I even told him today, he was a very nice guy named Fernando, who I met through a friend of mine, Vahid. Um, I told him, you know, I really want to go through a, a transformation and a journey. And I know I have to take those steps. I have to do the work. You can't do it for me. But I want you to keep me on the right path and to make sure I keep going on that path. And he was very much on board and, and he understood that. And, you know, this is what he does. And, and I, I appreciated his uh, encouragement and enthusiasm. I'm looking forward to working with him. But I realized that I do, did need that help. And it, it's not an easy thing to, to say or to ask for help. But I do recognize how important it is. And it's a reminder to myself, I'm taking it seriously that I'm asking for help. Um, very often we can, and I know I've been this person myself before, be the victims of our own pride or ego and feel that I don't need any help. No one can help me. Or, you know, we tell ourselves things like, well, I know myself better than anyone. So who else is going to help me? Or, you know, they're just going to tell me to do things I already know. Even we hear this about therapy. People say, what can someone tell me about my life or myself that I don't know? Or, oh, they already have problems themselves. What are they going to tell me? Or, you know, things of that nature. But that's not what we're doing when we go get someone to help us. It's not sometimes they might even tell us something we don't know, but they might allow us to see it in a different way and also to keep us accountable. A lot of what this trainer might tell me about working out and diet, I might know most of it myself, but I'm not able to do it on my own. But with his help... I'll be able to stay accountable and stay on top of things. So we have to not be afraid to ask for help, whether it's from a professional, which I think is important in a lot of different aspects of our life, or from people around us. We need support. We need help. Uh, willpower isn't this thing that we just have an endless supply of, that either we have it or we don't, or we can just do things uh by ourselves and don't need anyone because we have enough willpower. If we don't, that means we're weak. We have to set ourselves up for success and make sure we don't set ourselves up for failure. Um, in the book, The Willpower Instinct that I talked about last year, uh, you know, she talked about something interesting that people have this idea, this ideal future self. So today we might think, oh, it's so hard for me to work out. But next week, I'm going to wake up every day at 6 a.m. by myself and run for an hour and do this and do that. And we have this idea that in the future, somehow, we're going to have like perfect willpower, this idealized future self that we have. And we forget that you next week is going to be the same person as you today. It's not going to be any easier next week to do those things. But we're very good at tricking ourselves into thinking that, even to the point where we might take it easy this week because we think next week we'll work harder. Oh, I can, you know, eat bad this week. I'm going to eat perfectly next week. Oh, I don't need to study today. Tomorrow, I'm going to study all day long. I'm going to wake up, study, take a short break, study some more. And we trick ourselves into thinking that in the future, things will be easier for us when they're not. We're still going to be the same person with our same uh, temptations and desires and weaknesses and everything else. And we have to remember that. And we have to set ourselves up for success by recognizing, A, change is going to be uncomfortable, it's going to be painful, it's going to be uh, feel unnatural, it's going to feel wrong. And also, B, by getting support from other people, whether that's professional resources, uh, personal friends and family who are going to keep us accountable or to help us achieve our goals. But we shouldn't think we have to achieve something alone. Anyone who's achieved something great needed other people and did 
have the help of other people. So we have to lose this romanticized idea that I'm going to do it all by myself. It's all going to be me, no one else. I did it all by myself. There's nothing uh, good about that, and there's nothing bad about asking for help. So I hope you made some New Year's goals for yourself, wrote them down, followed the smart techniques for goals that I talked about last week to help make your goals more specific, measurable, attainable, relevant, and time measured so you have goals that are more uh, achievable and setting yourself up for success, but also ask for help and support and accountability from loved ones around you. The people that care about you, they'll want you to achieve your goals. They'll want to be there for you and to help you. Don't be afraid to ask. Don't be afraid to seek out those resources. And as I mentioned last week, you could have tried something 100 times, 1,000 times and not succeeded at your goal. It doesn't mean in any way that the thousandth and first time is not going to work. Now, what it does mean is that you should look at those first thousand times and see why it didn't work or what you can learn from those experiences. But don't ever lose hope that because you haven't done something yet, you still can't do it. Don't give up on yourself. So I hope people set those big goals for themselves and work towards them. And as always, I'd be happy to hear what your goals are. You can send them to me on social media and keep me updated on how they are going. And I'll, I'll do the same with the listeners as well. All right, we've reached our next commercial break. Studio number 310-441-0555. You're listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Delacqui. We'll be right back. back uh you know talking about changes you can make and another big one has to do with relationships and how people can improve their relationships um a lot of people put goals like have a better relationship with my partner which is good and obviously a good thing to want to do but what that means is not really clear because what does that mean to have a better relationship how would you know how would you measure that uh, one way you could do that is to actually talk to your partner and see how they're feeling in the relationship um but you know just from some experiences the past few weeks something i've recognized and this is less measurable is the importance of the depth of the connection that a partnership has husband and wife boyfriend girlfriend whatever it might be and the depth of the connection how important it is most people when they they talk about a relationship and they want to say if it's good or not a big thing they talk about is if they have problems, quote unquote, or not. Do they fight? Do they argue? And that's in a way considered a sign of a good relationship. If they don't fight that much, at least, as I always say, I hope you recognize arguments are going to be necessary. But that's how people tend to measure their relationships, by how little or much they fight, um, which is important, but it's missing a key element of the relationship or the other aspect, which is how deeply connected you are to your partner. And it is hard to measure this in some kind of numeric or tangible way. Again, you can talk to your partner, 
about that, how connected or distant you feel. But it's something even bigger than that, just a momentary thing. And when I work with couples in therapy, this is something I often recognize. Usually what brings couples in is a problem or problems that they're having that they want to to resolve or work on or even recognize, is this problem too big to deal with and maybe they need to break up or divorce. But it's the problems that usually bring couples in, which makes sense. But what oftentimes ends up happening and I get them to recognize is, yes, we'll look at the problems and we're definitely not going to ignore them. But what's very, very important is to actually increase the depth of their relationship. And that's something that I like to focus on in therapy is creating more intimacy uh, to create a stronger foundation, a stronger friendship and relationship between the two partners. And in a way, this addresses the problems as well, because the friendship and the connection and the relationship that husband and wife or the two partners have serves as the foundation of the relationship. And the stronger that is, the stronger that foundation, the more you can withstand when it comes to problems. Um, what I notice in a lot of relationships, people that get married, they actually are not that close. The relationship is not very strong. They might think they love each other or that they're even madly in love with each other, but the depth of the relationship isn't close to where it can or should be to create a strong relationship. And this is a big problem because what ends up happening is then once they start to face the inevitable obstacles that are going to come their way, there isn't enough to support what's going to happen. And that's really where the problem lies. It's not just with the problems they're experiencing, but it's a lack of the depth of the relationship that's missing. That's what's causing the bigger problem. Now, how do we create emotional intimacy? How does that happen? Well, a lot of elements can be part of emotional intimacy. But a big one and an important one is that both partners have to be willing to be open with each other, to connect with one another. Much easier said than done. Uh, it's very simple to say that, and most people will, will say that, even whether it's their wedding vows or they're saying to each other, I'm going to be open with you and completely connected to you, and, and there'll be no walls or barriers between us. But these things are nice and cliche things to say, but a lot harder to execute and to put into action. So we have to be willing to be open with one another. So, of course, this means, one, we have to feel safe with our partner, which means as a partner yourself, you have to give your um, partner the feeling that they can feel comfortable, they can feel safe, that they won't be judged uh, by you, that they don't have to hide from you. A very big one is that they won't feel that things will they say to you that they open up about will be used against them. Um, I hear this in a lot of relationships, but especially amongst Iranians, this idea that you have to be careful what you tell your partner because they're going to use it against you in a later fight or in some other way. They'll come back to say, well, you said this happened to you, so here's your problem or judge you for it somewhere down the line. So that feeling is not going to allow your partner to be open with you because they need to have that comfort that they can share something and not be afraid that it'll be used against them. So we have to really check in with ourselves. Am I giving my partner that space, especially to be emotional, to express feelings? M most of us have issues dealing with or tolerating our own negative feelings, the ones we call negative feelings, sadness, anger, 
um, those kinds of things, or especially when it comes to tears, we have a hard time dealing with those. And because of that, we have a hard time dealing with someone else's feelings. And so we don't want them. We push them away. If our partner becomes emotional, we tell them to stop crying or might maybe even get angry with them, or we don't make them feel very comfortable about that. But this is no way to create intimacy between you and your partner. To genuinely get close, you have to be able and willing to express and accept your partner's emotions. So you have to be able to be emotional with your partner and to allow your partner to get emotional with you. That's the only way to, to create intimacy. If we're closing off aspects of ourself or whole emotions and feelings, well, there's no way we're actually going to get that close to one another. We have to allow that space to be there. We have to give them that. But then, of course, taking that risk of being vulnerable is one that many people find very, very challenging. Again, in essence, it sounds easy to be open, be vulnerable, be free, but actually making it happen is very difficult for most people. Uh, the cliche is to say that it's harder for men, and I think that definitely is true, but it doesn't mean it's easy for women either. But we have to be able to be ourselves, which means we are, as human beings, flawed. We have our weaknesses. We have insecurities. We have pains from the past. We have fears. And we have to be able to express that to our partner, to our loved one. And again, how they respond is going to be very, very important. But as I say all this, when I work with a lot of couples, I see that they haven't had a lot of conversations that even explore or scratch the surface of these types of things, of getting into painful emotions from the past or feelings or what people are feeling now. We tend to prefer avoiding or denying those feelings both in ourselves and in our partner. And so sometimes I ask partners in therapy to talk about some topic or to ask each other and they've never even opened the conversation or had a discussion revolving something about painful memories of the past or what they feel today or things they fear today or their insecurities they don't that they don't know their partners maybe some people they don't even know their own they're avoiding that so we have to make room for these kinds of conversations i was talking about before this idea of uncomfortable things and how difficult they can be to put them into our lives to make changes. The same is true when it comes to conversations. People don't like to have uncomfortable conversations. They don't seek them out. And we have to actually almost sometimes force ourselves to have them. To tell our partner, hey look, we need to talk about this. Even though it might not be easy. Even though we'd prefer to talk about something else. Even though it's easier to avoid it altogether and pretend it's not there because it really is there. So this is a big part of having an intimate relationship is having those uncomfortable conversations. So couples who create intimacy aren't lucky. They aren't just the ones that, oh, they just seem to get each other or things come about easy for them. No, it takes hard work to create that kind of intimacy, that to create that kind of closeness. So as you evaluate yourself, and I think the new year is a good time to do that in different aspects of your life, if you're in a romantic relationship, ask yourself, how would I rate the emotional intimacy my partner and I have in our relationship from zero to 10? Can I be completely open with my partner? Can I share with him or her anything that comes to my mind or fears I have? things I feel about myself. Is there something about me that my partner doesn't know? 
whether it's about my past or my present. Are there things in my past painful memories, experiences that I haven't told my partner about? And of course, we only tell someone something when we feel ready to, but it's worth thinking about if you haven't shared something with your partner, why maybe haven't I? Why have I held back from him or her in this way? But really think about the emotional intimacy. Again, it's very easy to think about the quality of a relationship just based on the number of problems or the way or amount of fights a couple has. And that's how I think most people measure it. But we have to look at the other side of it too, not just the presence or the lack of bad things, but really the presence or lack of good things, of the connection and of the intimacy. Uh, and as John Gottman talks about and looks at in all his research on marriages, what's the best predictor of a healthy and happy marriage that doesn't end in divorce? Well, it's the quality of the friendship between the partners, how strong that bond is. Because again, that foundation is what's going to allow them to withstand the inevitabilities of life, the obstacles, the challenges, the fights, the ups and downs that are, are going to come from life and also within the relationship itself. So you have to create that bond and it takes effort to, to make that bond happen. You have to put in time, you have to put in uh, effort, you have to make sure you put in quality time. Uh, another issue lots of couples have these days is they might be in the same room, but they're not connected or engaged at all. Both can be on their phones or watching TV or doing something completely separate from one another. So if you ask them if they spend a lot of time together, they say, oh yeah, we spend a lot of time together. We're always together. But when you actually look at the quality or the level of engagement, you see that really there isn't much there. So if you want to make your relationship better, yes, work on the problems, but also make sure you're working on the connection and making sure you and your partner have the emotional intimacy that will be a buffer or serve as some strength that will allow you to withstand the stresses that you will experience together in this year, in the coming years, because they will come your way. Um, so that's something I wanted to talk about today because of the lack of emphasis that I see, that couples are so focused on problems. And if there's no problems, I think everything's okay. But that doesn't necessarily mean everything's okay because we don't know how strong that connection and that bond is, which is something you want to focus on. All right, we've reached our next commercial break. Studio number 3104410555. You're listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Delacqui. We'll be right back. As people are thinking about goals and ways they want to make changes this year, one aspect of life that I think is worth looking at for, for all of us is the effect of technology or the way we use technology in our lives. I talked about the book, The Cyber Effect, this past year by Dr. Mary Aiken, which I found very interesting. Um, but it is something really to think about and look at in your life. Now, it's very easy to just talk about technology in this negative way or say oh it's this bad thing that's making things worse and are there bad elements to it absolutely and can it be used for bad 
most definitely. And that's what I think is important for us each to look at in our own life because technology can be a good thing or it can be a bad thing. And it's really up to us to make it one or the other and how we use it. So when it comes to things like social media and smartphones, tablets, and those kinds of things, I think what's important for each of us to ask ourselves is, am I using them to connect more or are they actually leading to disconnection? Is my phone making me more connected in my life or disconnected? Now, for some people, the easy answer might seem to be, well, more connected because I go on Facebook and I connect with a bunch of friends. I text with a bunch of friends on Instagram. I see pictures of my friends and post pictures of myself that, that make me more connected. So, of course, it appears that the simple answer is that technology is making us much more connected. It's making us much more uh, social in a way. Of course, we even call it social media. So we feel like we're, we're more social than we were before. But the problem is that although we're having a much more quantity of social interactions or even uh, people that we interact with, these interactions are lacking in quality or lacking in depth. And I just talked about in the previous segment about the depth that we have in our relationships, especially our romantic relationships in particular. But what we're doing is we're creating a lot of superficial connections and relationships in our lives. And this is actually a really big problem. So people might think today I texted with 20 people, so I talked to 20 people. And that seems like a lot. And maybe 20 years ago, you would have never talked to that many people uh, in one day. But the depth, again, is what's missing. One meaningful phone call might be much more uh, connected than 20 texts that are all superficial and shallow and don't involve any really hearing each other or really connecting with one another. So it's important to ask yourself, how is social media leading to connection or how is my the use of technology leading to connection, how is it leading to disconnection? And the biggest way we see it leading to disconnection is people being on their phones or tablets or gadgets while they are with people. They are next to someone, but who they're communicating with or what they're doing is not connecting with the person who is right next to them, whoever that might be a husband or wife or child, friend, whoever it is, we're not connected to that person who is right next to us. And that's something really worth thinking about and, and looking at. Unfortunately, I think what's happening is it's so common in our culture that we don't even think of it as something bad. Someone can be talking to us and we take out our phone and some people might get offended and say something, but very often we don't because almost it is acceptable to do that. And I think that's, that's really a shame that we're making it okay to, in a way, disrespect each other, but at least definitely disconnect with the people who are around us to connect with someone else or to distract ourselves in some way. And so this is something I think worth looking at for yourself. How often in a day do you find yourself doing that? Now, unfortunately, what also happens is, and what is happening, is our attention spans are becoming shorter. This is another cliche that people talk about when it comes to technology, but even the research is showing us that. And I can speak from my own personal experience that I've noticed a change in my attention span 
uh, back from when I was an undergrad and smartphones really were just kind of becoming a thing or not really existed much um, compared to now. Back then, I would be able to sustain my attention a lot easier because there wasn't this constant distraction, this constant way of keeping myself occupied, which isn't a good thing. We sometimes think that as we're busy, quote unquote, we're doing something good, but busy isn't necessarily productive and busy isn't necessarily good. Just because you're occupied doesn't mean you're actually being productive or doing something good. Um, but I've seen this shift in my own attention span as social media has become a bigger part of my own life or short videos becomes the way we consume information. We don't want to watch something long. We want to watch something that's short and just get it over with. And this is a big problem. So I've noticed in myself this change and I'm trying to make a conscious effort. Again, going back to what I talked about earlier today, that without a conscious effort, it's hard to make these kinds of changes to, to use social media less or to use my phone less as a form of just distracting myself or of taking myself away from a situation uh, and using it more sparingly, being aware of that. So I would hope that everyone listening does think about this issue. Um, I think it is really interesting when you compare today to just a generation ago. If you go on a, a plane, a bus, anywhere, restaurant, everyone is almost doing the same thing. They have their phone in their hand and they're looking at it. We, we didn't have that before, something that everyone looked at. Uh, and just like any addiction, we can create an addiction and a need for something that, of course, we don't need, something that didn't even exist before. But now people don't have their phones and they can feel naked. They can feel like they can't go on or they can't exist without having their phone by their side. And we should take that as a bad thing. It's not a good thing at all. Um, but especially I want to make this point to people in relationships and parents that using your smartphone when you're around your kids or around your partner can be a very negative thing and have detrimental effects on your relationship that you shouldn't take lightly. Now, as a parent, first of all, when you're not engaged with your kids, your child is missing something. And if you think I can just sit them in front of a screen and they're going to learn, well, we know that when they're very little, what they need more than anything is to communicate with you, to have conversations with you even if they can't yet talk they need to have you talking to them looking at them engaging with them sitting them in front of a screen and saying they're going to learn from baby einstein is not a way of really helping your kids but even besides that of just them learning engaging with you and having eye contact is something that's more meaningful than anything else you can give them so yes i know parents have to take care of things and they have social lives and they have to check emails for work and do all those things. But be aware of when and how you're doing that. If you are disengaging from your child to do those things often, that has a negative effect on the relationship. And to take that a step further, you're also modeling for them how to act as well. And so many parents use smartphones and tablets as a way to keep their kids busy. Again, this goes back to what I was just saying, that we think that as long as our kid is quiet and occupied, we're doing our job as a parent. Okay, well, our kid's watching something, they're quiet, they're not causing a fuss. That's good. Then I must be okay. It goes back to also what I was saying before, that we feel like if there's no problem, then everything is okay, not realizing the effects of what's actually going on. Um, but this is not good. 
kids don't need screens. Don't think that if you're a loving parent, you buy your kid the most expensive iPad to show them how much they mean to you. They don't need those things. They need communication, connection, and engagement. They don't need screens. And like junk food, once you introduce screens into their lives, it's very difficult to take it away. Or it's very difficult to introduce back the healthier uh, foods or the healthier ways of communicating and engaging. They become dependent on the fast-paced changes, the way that they can interact with the phone, that they can't interact with people, and this leads to big problems. So be aware of that effect on your kids. And just like unhealthy foods, be aware that introducing them means that now they're going to want that more and they're going to have a hard time engaging in other ways. So if parents really take that seriously, I think it's become, unfortunately, an accepted part of the culture that now when you have a kid, you check your email when you're around them or you give them a tablet, you see kids in strollers and each and every one of them almost has a smartphone or a tablet in their hand to keep them busy or occupied. This is not good. I think we see it as the norm, but it's a very, very unhealthy norm. And just because other people are doing it, don't think you have to do it too, especially in this age of competitive parenting where parents are trying to make sure they're doing more and the best for their kids. Don't think that if you get them, your, your friends got their kids an iPad and you don't, you're a worse parent or you're not spending as much or not caring as much. That absolutely is not the case. It's something that is not good for them, especially at all before the age of two, but that they don't need to have. If you can get them more engaged without some kind of technology, I would say that's, that's a very good thing and something much better to do. But then also to the couples, this is something important too. I just talked about the last segment about intimacy and being close. And I just see so many couples get together and they're both on their smartphones. They're in bed going to sleep. And for the last half hour before sleep, they're both looking up at their screens as if the other person doesn't exist. Or one partner wants to tell their partner something important, something that means something to them. And the other one is looking at something on Facebook or Twitter as they're listening or nodding along. That's not communication. That's not listening. That's not connecting. If someone really wants to tell you something important and you want to show them it matters to you, you should put your phone away 100%. Not even have it out, actually. Uh, the research shows us that even if your phone is out, it's going to distract you because of that temptation to check it or wonder if there's some notification there. Unfortunately, the, uh, the apps and the social media companies, they're trying to make us more and more addicted to them because that's how they make money. The more you're checking, the more you're on, the more time you spend on there, the more things you like and, and, and the more you browse, the more money they make. So they spend lots of money trying to figure out how to make you more addicted to it. And unfortunately, they're all too good at it and we find ourselves very hooked. But if your partner wants to tell you something important and you have your phone out, that should, for both of you, be taken as a sign of disrespect, as a sign of not caring enough about what they have to say. If it's something important, you can even tell your partner, can you please put your phone away? Because it's something important that I want to talk to you about. But also you as the listener, take that very seriously. That what you're telling your partner is what you're saying is not that important if you have your phone out or uh, the opposite. If you put it away, you're saying, look, I, I'm taking this seriously. I want to make sure you have my full attention. Because this idea of multitasking we know doesn't exist. 
when you multitask, you're actually not doing many things at the same time. You're just rapidly switching your attention from one thing to another and actually not giving any of them enough attention to take care of them well. But today's day and age, we show off about how much we can do at the same time or multitasking seems to be the only way we think to be uh, productive or to get everything done. But it's better to do each thing one at a time. And especially when it comes to communicating with someone you love, make sure you're putting that time and attention in the right way, giving them what they actually want, which is your undivided attention. That's a resource that no one else can replace for you, time and attention. And you want to make sure you use that wisely. So going back to what I was saying, it's important for every one of us to take a look at how we use technology and how much it leads to connection and how much it leads to disconnection. I'm not here to give a lecture about how all technology is bad and if you're using your phone, you shouldn't be because I don't agree with that. Lots of people uh, connect with loved ones using their phone. They do FaceTime, which is an amazing thing. You can actually have a face-to-face conversation with a relative who's in a different country. That's pretty amazing. Um, Or they stay in touch with someone that would have been very difficult to stay in touch with if they didn't have social media or different apps that they're able to use. So don't think it's all bad because I definitely don't think that's the case. But it's important for each of us to think about the disconnection it creates. Now I'm talking about disconnection with other people, but there's a very important level of disconnection that smartphones create, and that's disconnection from ourselves. We use our phones as a way of distracting ourselves from our own emotions. You sit down, before any kind of feeling or thought creeps in, you take out your phone and mindlessly start looking at something as a form of distraction. So the amount of disconnection that I'm talking about that technology has created is is significant amongst people, but I think the most significant impact has been in the way we connect with ourselves. Very seldom do people find themselves sitting silently by themselves without any distraction. Before it was always TV and those kinds of things, but now anywhere we are, we very quickly take out our phone and we won't experience even a solitary moment with ourselves. And we actually need that ability to be silent, to be quiet with ourselves, not just to get peace of mind, but also to connect more deeply to what's going on. What do I feel deep down? What's going on for me? What do I want? What do I like and dislike about my life? And this is another reason why I think meditation is so important in this day and age. The research shows that it's important no matter what, but I think it's also a way of forcing us in a positive way to actually disconnect from all those other things and to connect more deeply with ourselves, what's going on with me, and to check in with ourselves. So again, focus on the disconnection your your smartphones and the technology is creating and what you can do to make sure you connect more both with those around you, your friends, family, loved ones, but also with yourself. Take some time every day that you don't have your smartphone out at all, even if it's just for a few minutes, and actually see how hard that might be for you to not take your phone out just for two minutes, for one minute. It sounds funny, but I think for many people to find that to be very, very challenging. And if it is, that should be alarming to you, that I can't even spend a few minutes without that and really spend a few minutes just with myself. So if you're taking a look at your life and different aspects of your life, something I'd highly recommend because of the impact it's having on us is how technology is affecting you. 
in the form of connecting you or disconnecting you from those around you, but also disconnecting you from yourself. All right, we've reached our next commercial break, studio number 3104410555. You're listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Delacqui. We'll be right back. You know, I was talking about relationships a few segments ago, and well, if you're not in a relationship yet, you have to to find one, and that brings us to dating. So I thought, you know, to start a new year, a lot of people they get excited and say 2018 is going to be the year about whatever it is about making money, meeting someone, winning the lottery, whatever they want to do. Uh, people like to do that, and I'm okay with the optimism. That's fine. But uh, going back to what I was saying before. If you want 2018 to be the year, you have to make it the year, meaning that you have to do something about it. You have to do something different if you want 2018 to be the year. So I thought it would be good to talk a bit about dating because that's one aspect of life that whether you're in a relationship or you're not, people focus a lot about. But especially if you're not in one, people want a relationship and they want to know what they can do. So I wanted to talk a little bit about that. Um, I'll start off by saying, well, you have to meet someone, right? And I want to bring up again that we shouldn't be embarrassed about how we meet someone. Online dating is nothing to be embarrassed or ashamed about. I'll bring it up as often as I need to because I still encounter so many people that don't want to either put their picture up or they don't want to do it at all. They're embarrassed. Who's going to see me on there? And every time they say that, I say, well, if anyone sees you on there, first of all, there's nothing to be ashamed about. But second of all, they're on there too. So they have nothing to judge you on or to say to you because they're doing the same thing. So please don't be embarrassed to go online. The stigma, thankfully, is becoming less. But I think amongst Iranians, I still notice it more strongly. But, it, you know, it still exists even in the mainstream culture, but it's a lot less. Because to be honest, when online dating first started or when there was things like that, very few people were doing it. So there was a stigma of being desperate or people would say, oh, only losers are on there or whatever else they would say to judge people who were doing that. Um, but now we see that everyone pretty much is online. So don't be afraid to do that. Uh, one of the things that people say about online dating is that it's not natural or, you know, they want to just meet someone. And I'm not against just meeting someone at a supermarket or coffee shop or whatever it might be, or just randomly. It can happen. But what we're talking about is increasing the chances that you meet someone that can be compatible with you. That's all it's about. For me, online dating is about expanding the pool of people that you get exposed to, to date. That's it. And I always say I don't like calling it even online dating. I consider it online meeting because you meet or connect online, but then you have to date in person just like everyone else. There's nothing that's going to happen online because you met online. You have to make things happen. So I'm not in any way opposed to meeting online or even meeting on Facebook or Instagram. There's nothing wrong with that. 
there's nothing bad about uh, that way of meeting someone. Now, what I will say about online dating, and I was just alluding to that, is that you connect online, but don't keep the relationship online or distant. And by that, I mean quickly after you connect, make sure you see each other. And I think it doesn't matter if you're the guy or the girl, but make that a point. Because I've seen too many people meet someone online and they keep it just texting for weeks or even months and they start to feel like they're in love or they're very, very close to each other, but they don't know each other at all. You need to really see each other in person, not just because the physical matters, which it does, to see if there is that chemistry and attraction, but also to really see how you feel with that person, to get to know them. There's no uh, way to replicate that. Nothing can replicate the feeling or the experience of being with that person face to face. So I always say pretty quickly into the connection, make a plan to see each other. Don't turn it into uh, texts and texts and messages for weeks and months. Yes, phone calls are better than text in getting to know each other. So move forward in that way. But soon after you connect, see each other, see what it's like. Not because you're in love with the person and you want to, you know, you make the person feel a pressure, but you can even let them know. I'd like to, to see how we are in person. I think it's a better way to get to know someone and see if there's chemistry and attraction. So let's meet for coffee or uh, drinks or a walk, whatever it might be, something short, something public, um, and go from there. You know, the reason I say public is you want to feel comfortable and people, one of the things they might say is, what if I meet someone crazy or someone scary? Is it possible? Yes. But of course you can meet someone at a bar or restaurant or coffee shop and they can be that same people. The same people are online, but meet someone in public, make yourself more comfortable in that way. But again, it's online meeting, then the dating has to happen in person. Now, what I also think is important when you're dating or before you date is to know what you want and to be aware of that and then to be honest about what you want. So you have to know what you're looking for. Are you looking for a long-term relationship or are you casually dating? Neither one is right or wrong, but it's good to know what you want and to be upfront about that. And also know qualities of a person you are looking for and some things you're not looking for. Especially know your deal breakers. If there's a certain age range that is acceptable to you and nothing above or below that is not, then don't even go on a first date with someone that's not in that age range. Or for example, if you know you would not want to be with someone who has children because you either don't want that situation or you want to have your own kids or the person or whatever other reason, if they have children, then don't go on that first date either. Too often people start these things thinking, ah, it's not a big deal or it's casual or I don't know what I'm even looking for. And then they find themselves two, three months down the line and they're having strong feelings for the person, but they don't know what to do because there are these big red flags that were there from day one, but they chose to ignore them and just quote unquote, see what happens. Um, I'm a big fan of spontaneity and keeping things going in a natural way, but we have to think things through. If you see a big giant red flag, don't keep going forward. Don't ignore them and move forward without them. So know the things you definitely don't want and some of the things you do want and also know what you're looking for. And what I also say is don't be afraid to share with the person what you're looking for. Um, oftentimes people say, well, if I'm looking for marriage and I tell the person on the first date, I'm going to scare them away. 
But what I say is you're not saying I'm looking to marry you or I know I want to marry you. You're just saying that that's where I am in my life or that's the path I'm on at this point or what I'm looking for is that's the direction I am in because you want to be open about that. And if someone doesn't want that, well, then you don't want to start dating them anyway. You don't want to start that process. So to me, even the first date, I think it can be okay depending on how the conversation is going, but definitely by date two or three, make sure you're very clear as to what you are looking for, what you're not looking for, what you want, and what you want from them and what you're expecting and go from there. Now, um, related to that, the first couple of dates, you might already know that you're not interested in the person. Really, the way that dating works is you know the no, and you can say that, but you don't know if someone's a yes, you just know they're not a no yet. So you keep going and see if they become that person. But you might know within five minutes of the first date, sometimes people meet online, they feel the connection, but once they see the person instantly, they kind of know this isn't going to work out. Now, out of respect, you might not say just let's end the date now. You might sit through that date, but don't feel uncomfortable letting them know how you feel. It's okay to not be interested in someone. To begin with, it doesn't mean you're better than that person. It just means you don't feel that you're a match with them. So you don't have to feel like you're seriously insulting them. You want to, of course, do it with sensitivity because it doesn't necessarily feel good. There can still be a feeling of rejection, but you want to understand you're not doing something really bad or wrong. And it's actually better to let the person know you're not interested. So one, they don't start to develop more feelings or any kind of attachment or excitement towards you, but also so they can move on and start to meet someone else. Uh, another unfortunate artifact of the digital age is things like ghosting where people just disappear. So you'll go on a date or a couple dates and then they'll just not respond to your texts or calls anymore rather than actually having an uncomfortable conversation with you. And I'm always for pushing people to have those uncomfortable conversations very politely, very sweetly, very shortly. You can let them know that you don't see that person as a match, that it was nice to meet them and you wish them all the best. And that can be that. You don't have to avoid that conversation. And the more times you have conversations like that, whether you're the one initiating it or the one receiving it, the more you realize it's not that big of a deal. Again, you met someone, um, you're not a match in their eyes for some reason. You can even ask them if you'd like. They might tell you, they might not. And then you move on. We have to not take something like that so personally. Because if we do, then we're going to be afraid to have those conversations uh, being on either side of it. But let the person know how you feel and recognize there's nothing bad about not being interested in someone. Uh, something that people regularly say is like, oh, I, I felt bad to tell her or to tell him I wasn't interested. And in a way, they try to portray themselves as being nice. It's because I'm so nice that I couldn't tell him or tell her I wasn't interested. But it's not that you're being nice. It's that you don't want to be there when they're feeling the pain. You're trying to avoid feeling responsible or being that bad guy in the moment. You'd rather spread it out and let them figure it out. So if you ask me, it's much more mean to not tell someone and let them figure out over weeks or however long it takes, rather than is to just let them know. So don't tell yourself it's because I'm so nice. It's that you're avoiding the awkward conversation. You don't want to be there when they get hurt, not because you don't want them to hurt, because the hurt is going to be there anyway. So you want it to keep that in mind. It's nicer to tell someone you're not interested in them 
than to avoid it and let them try to figure it out. But most people, unfortunately, they take the easier route. Now, if things are, are going well and you keep going forward, you want to make sure you start talking about things that are going to be important for your future after a short while. Now, by that, I mean even things like having kids and have that conversation genuinely. The reason why I say that is some people, they think, well, I don't want to scare the person away, so I don't say I want kids. Or if they say they want kids and I don't want kids, I'll kind of leave it open because I don't want to end the relationship. This is a huge mistake. And unfortunately, people do this all the time and then end up six months, a year down the line or even married and then really face the hard part where they say, well, actually, I really didn't want to have kids to begin with, but I wasn't sure how to tell you. So I didn't be very open about these things. And if you're the person hearing it and the person says, I don't want kids, don't think, well, I'm going to change his or her mind. Let me just work it out with them. I don't want to lose this because this person seems like a good person. You're just setting yourself up to get hurt really, really bad and to create a messy situation. And you're not really being genuine to yourself or the other person. And the last thing I'll say in this segment is to be honest from day one, be honest and truthful from day one. What people sometimes say is that, well, at the beginning, it doesn't really matter. So I made this up or I said this, or I, I, you know, fudged the truth a little bit in this way or that, or also in the Persian culture, again, there's this idea that you have to lie or else you're being simple or sadder, or you're going to let the person take advantage of you in so, some way, almost they, they will laugh at you for telling the truth. There's, they expect you to lie, but this is really bad for creating one, the culture of your relationship, but also the feeling of trust related to that. When you start lying from the beginning to your partner, you create this culture and this idea that it's okay to lie in our relationship, that this is something that we do, that's something that I do. Not only that, oftentimes you might lie about something early in the relationship, even in the first dating days, and the person later on finds out that you lied. And this can affect the way they feel about trusting you because they think of, wow, you told me that when it was really this, how do I know I can really believe you when you tell me other things as well? So it can affect the trust that you have between you and your partner. So take this idea of being truthful and honest from day one as something very serious. That's something that you won't uh, uh, bargain on or you won't change the way you feel about. You're going to be 100% about that because when you do that, you will create a better relationship and it's not something that you can ever take back. Dishonesty, lies, uh, breaks in the trust are not things you can just remove or patch over or take away. They have significant impacts that don't ever go away. So be honest from day one. I know on our first dates, we try to present ourselves in a certain way and everyone's going to do that to a degree which means you might show a better side of yourself, but don't lie about who you are or lie about anything from age to past. If you've been married or don't or have kids, of course, people lie about all those things, unfortunately, but don't lie about those things. Be honest, be you, make sure the person that you're meeting knows who you are. And if they do develop feelings for you, develop feelings for the actual you, not some person you're making up or pretending to be or things that you're hiding from them. Um, but Hopefully, if you're looking for someone, 
you'll get out there. And again, if you want 2018 to be the year, you have to make it the year. You have to put effort into it. You have to try. You have to work at it. And yes, it is possible, but it's only possible if you make it so. All right, we're going into our last commercial break. Studio number 3104410555. We'll be right back. Back. Let's go to a caller. Radio Hamra, you're on the air. Hello? Yes, hi. Hi. Hi, if you could um, speak up, please. Your voice is coming in very faint. Uh, just, is that better now? It's a little bit better, yeah, but even the, the more loudly you can speak, the better it would be. Go ahead. Okay. Uh, well, uh, I'm calling you regarding the problem that I have with my husband. Okay. And... Um, the main problem is about his family. Uh, when I can't remember, we don't, we haven't had any problem between us. And it's, we, let me uh, let me just stop you for. Ago. Sorry, let me stop you there for a second. Again, you're gonna have to speak a lot more loudly. It's very hard to hear what you're saying, and even speak more into the phone if you can, please. Uh, just, how is this? How is that now? It's it's better, yeah. But again, as loud as maybe if it feels like you're yelling, giving it'll be okay. Go ahead. Sure. Um, well, the main problem is about his family. Okay. And um, the last problem that I had with his family is um, because a few months ago I lost my father, hmm. and um, I live in Europe with my husband mm-hmm. and uh, also. My husband-in-law, um, my, sorry, my brother-in-law lives here also in the city that he lives. Okay. And um, he, during this time, he never called me. And uh, he, a few months ago, he married at Iran, and he bring his, uh, his uh, wife here. And uh, now. Um, my husband is telling that we have to have some uh, meeting with them and we have to invite them and this sort of things and something like uh, those customs and cultures that there is in Iran who uh, invite a new bride. But um, uh, I'm telling him that I don't like to. Hello? All right, we lost. Our caller there. Um, but the call, what she was talking about, it seems, is uh, families and family involvement, which can be a very complicated matter. In, our, in the Persian culture and in lots of cultures, it can be even more complex. Now, one thing that we always want to remember is when we enter into a marriage, that person and us and them are our new family. Doesn't we forget our family of origin, but that is the family that we are responsible to. And of course, even magnify that more when you have children, but overall, this is your family. And many couples will face this issue, uh, maybe a little bit different than where she was going, but they might even get tested, maybe even unconsciously, but it can happen where 
the in-laws, especially the parents, might even test their son or daughter to see where their allegiance lies. Now, of course, if you are in-laws, I would hope you don't do that to your children, but I see it happen so often that I think it's worth mentioning. But as a partner, this is where you now are tested to see what you do. And they're going to see who do you choose? Do you choose your, let's say, mother or do you choose your wife, whether it's in an argument or some situation that is going on? And it's very important for you, of course, to make that decision, which to me, the right decision is to choose your spouse, to choose your partner, to make it very clear that they are the one that you have responsibility to, that you are going to listen to the most, and you're going to do what they want more than what your parent or parents or brother or sister or anyone else wants. So your responsibility is to your spouse and your duty is to them. Now, of course, this doesn't mean there's no room for family, that there's no space to be involved with them, but it's something to keep in mind. Now, I think we have the caller back. And because we started with her, I do want to go back to her. Caller, are you there? Hello? Hello. Yes, hi. We lost you there for a few minutes. I'm glad to have you back. Go ahead. It's fine. Um, so, shall I continue? Yes, you were saying, uh, the you know, your brother-in-law got married and now there's an expectation that you guys uh, invite them over or have comings and goings with them, especially inviting the new bride. Exactly. Okay. And um, now I, uh, my question is about uh, uh, how important uh, this sort of thing in life, because it's it's going to be a, a nightmare at my life, because I don't like to um, have any relationship with them, but my husband... Um, um, persists and insists that he wants to invite his brother um, and um, he, he should uh, invite them, he wants to have a relationship with them and this sort of thing. And I, I'm telling him that if, because I, I saw a lot of uh, unkindness from them and um, I, I'm telling him if you invite them, it means that um, you are um, confirming that uh, their behavior, their bad behavior with me is uh, correct, and you are confirming them. So I'm not sure, um, am I in a right way? Am I thinking correctly or no? Well, you know, it's going to be more complex than just if you're thinking correctly or you ask me how important it is, I can't say it definitely is or isn't. Um, but did you explain to your husband what you felt like were the unkindness or the, that you felt from his brother? Yeah, I told him and I told him he, when I was uh, in, a, in a loss of my father, he even didn't call me. And uh, even in many, any, in many more equations, um, for example, uh, once we were at his home, uh, for two months, he allowed us to live in his home to find a new home for oh. ourselves. Well, that, and, and that's a very, but although one, I mean, that's definitely a sign of kindness. I know you're saying he did a lot of not kind. Now, maybe he did something you didn't like, but that was nice that he had you stay with them for two months. Yes, but he, at the first, he told you can come here and stay, but after 
a few weeks, he um, just uh, one night he told us, you are going to move out. And we didn't have anywhere to go. Mm. So it was in the winter, my husband slept at the car in the street. And uh, I didn't know anyone here. And I just asked uh, an Iranian guy that can I uh, stay at home for a few days uh, to find a home. So um, I met him. At the first, he told us that you can stay at our ho- at my home. But after that, suddenly he changed his mind and he told, if you are not going to move out just tonight, I'm going to throw you throughout. And okay. um, so, yeah, I, I'm not sure. I, I'm telling him, my husband that he, he did lots of bad things to us. What did your husband I say? He's telling that he's my brother, and um, if he did something wrong, I cannot uh, do in his way. So I, I, I have another way to behave with him, and um, I cannot uh, forbid him. And uh, I want to have a relationship with him. Um, I just want to invite him in this occasion, and I know he's a. Uh, um, he doesn't have a good behavior, but um, I'm not going to behave like him, just yet. Okay. Well, you and know... He's saying, he's saying my personality is um, different with my brother. So um, that's why I'm, I'm deciding to invite him. But I, I feel he's very dependent with family. Well, yeah, that could be a problem. Now, do you feel like your husband understands your perspective, understands what you feel? Yes, you know, because we had a bad uh, discussion. And, um, yeah, and a few times ago, a few months ago, even we had another problem with his family behaved very badly to me and uh, I even um, um, leave the home and he came and he told me that uh, I understand I did uh, even I they, they behaved badly to mm-hmm. you and um, so I mean that, well that part is good that he's showing yeah. you he understands how you feel that's going to be important now if it's one time having his brother over i think it's possible you can just accept that and have them over but it seems like you you have a bigger issue which we might not get to we only have about four or five minutes left with with your Mm -hmm. husband about how he is with his family and what what's going on Mm -hmm. there that you feel that he's too dependent on them that he he's going to be too connected to them but if he's just saying have them over for one time for dinner i know you don't like it but to me that can be okay that hopefully you can accept mm-hmm. that but uh, yeah I, I feel it's not just about inviting them for dinner and uh, he also he every day asks for new thing like um, a few days ago he told me that um, do you let me to invite them at home for just uh, seeing each other and um, again, after that, again, asked me to call uh, um, his brother and uh, his wife to um, t- 
tell them congratulations that they had married and came here and this sort of thing. And I feel every day there is a new thing. Well, that that's what you're going to have to, you know, so I mean, that's why I think just the dinner itself doesn't mean that much to me, but it seems like you and him have to have a much bigger conversation about this, about how you're feeling about him and his expectations from you with his family and how you feel he feels about them. Because also what you described is, I don't know all the details of what happened when you were staying at his brother's house, but, he, you know, your your husband was sleeping in the car. It sounds like it was a very rough and stressful situation but it seems like your brother does your husband doesn't want to think about that or wants to just pretend like it didn't happen or maybe he has his own feelings of guilt towards them for some reason from his own childhood that he doesn't want to let them go um but but there seems to be something more going on so you're gonna have to talk to him more about this situation what does he want what are his expectations of you do you feel like he understands you and your perspective on this? And you could also let him know what you're okay with and not okay with. But you guys have to talk a lot more about this. You can't just let it happen because maybe you're right. Each week or however often he's going to bring up something new that maybe you're not okay with. And you're going to have to talk to him. Mm. Well, uh, we in several occasions we talked about these uh, problems together and he accepted and he told me, okay, this time if something happened, I'm going to, um, I, I'm going to protect you, and I'm not going to leave you alone in a, a bad situation. But then, when something new happens, he forgot completely, and um, yeah, he decides something else that we talked about. Well, that's well, that's a problem. I mean, you're gonna have to talk to him about that and say, because of that, I might not be able to trust you that you're going to do what you said you're going to do because you didn't follow through it seems like he does maybe you're right have some kind of dependency or some kind of guilt feeling towards his family where he feels like he has to give them and it seems like i was talking about it a little bit while you were off the air but you feel that he doesn't choose you over them and i think that's a very important thing is that you feel like he chooses you over them or he prefers what you care about more than what they care about. doesn't mean he doesn't care at all about what they think or about them, but that he prefers you, that he makes you the priority. It doesn't seem like you, you're feeling that. And that's something important that I would say it's, it's worth talking to him about, that you don't feel like you're his priority, and that's not going to work. Exactly, exactly. And the, my, my, my problem is about this. I, I'm always telling, telling him, that are not your priority, your family are your first priority, and I, I'm the last one in your family, in your life. And uh, somehow, sometimes I feel um, very disrespe disrespect about the situations, about his behavior, about his family behavior. So. Well, that that's going to be very important. Me, yeah, you know, we do. I do have to wrap up the show. But that's going to be very important for you to make. That's the point I'd focus on is is that, that I feel that you don't prefer me. So the specifics of dinner here or that are less important to me than that feeling you have that he doesn't make you the priority, that he doesn't care as much about your feelings as he does about his brothers or other people. And it's probably something deeper than just that we can get to right now because it's something related to him. So if you have to go to couples therapy with him, I would do that. But this isn't something you can ignore because it's just going to get bigger. I'm sorry we're out of time. Hopefully you can call another time and we can talk oh. some more. Okay. 
Well, thank you for your time. My there. pleasure. Nice talking to you. Take care. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. All right, we've reached the end of today's show. Thank you to Raman here in the studio, all the callers and listeners out there. Again, Happy New Year to you all. Wish everyone the best. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Tolakwi. Have a wonderful day. Mm-hmm.